But I think one of the issues with medics that we sort of we as a race have as medics is that we tend not to do stuff unless there is a clear ROI on it. Like we think, how will this benefit my CV? How will this increase the amount of points I get for my FPAS application so I can maybe apply to a London deanery so I can maybe get 87 points rather than 84 points? It, we, we think in these ridiculous ways that are very much, I need to do A in order to lead to B. Ali is an FY2 doctor, a YouTuber, a podcaster, and an entrepreneur. I first came across his videos when he was making content like most effective study tips for students and how I ranked first in my medical school exams, but he's since blown up to over 770,000 subscribers at the time of recording and started making really exceptional content on productivity, tech and entrepreneurship. What's incredible about Ali is that he's managed to transcend just being a YouTuber and he's diversified with his own educational Skillshare classes, a weekly email newsletter, a successful business, a podcast and much, much more. Essentially, he's made Ali Abdal into a brand. Now, Ali's a huge inspiration for me and we speak about personal branding, being productive and being successful as a medical student as well as side hustles and passive income. I'm guessing a lot of you have seen Ali's content on YouTube before, but in case you haven't, you're really going to enjoy this episode if you've got a hidden creative inside you and you're thinking about putting out your own content. And also, if you just like the idea of having side projects, maybe a business or passive income as a doctor, this is a great interview. I think you're going to enjoy this a lot. Right, Ali. So I usually start off with a softball question to uh, to get people comfortable, but you're a pro, so shall we dive straight in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my journey was very good. Thank you very much for asking. The traffic was a bit delayed. <laughs> Whatever those softball questions are. So if you lost all of your YouTube channel, your personal brand, six med, everything, and you had to restart tomorrow as a regular doctor with no special skills or anything, what would be your plan for the next year? I would make a personal website. I would do it under my real name. I would hope that the domain aliabdal.com hasn't been taken. It probably hasn't at this point. And I would do a lot of writing online. And the sort of stuff I would write about is I would start by um, sort of all the books that I've ever read and all the podcasts I've ever listened to that I've resonated with. I would write notes on those. And so sort of make it almost a curated source where people can come to it and find interesting book recommendations, podcast recommendations. Um, And once all of that is done, once I've got like a system for that, I would trawl through PubMed and find uh, research papers where you can gain some interesting insights from them. So a lot of things in psychology, maybe some neuroscience stuff. And I would summarize the insights from these literature papers, uh, from for, from these scientific papers in a way that people can apply to their lives. Um, and there is a good website called, um, what's it called? It's called, uh, I can't remember, but there's also, uh, there's all sorts of places on the internet where you can find links to obscure PDFs. And like, you know, this study from the 1970s that showed that, uh, you know, that looked at swimmers and looked at the, the the factors that made some swimmers elite performers and some swimmers just like basic club level swimmers. And those are like long ass sort of 30 page papers. But as a medic, as someone who knows how to read papers, I could draw out the insights from that, turn it into a nice blog post. I would summarize the blog post as a series of tweets. I would start regularly tweeting all the things that I've read, watched and listened to and all these papers and stuff. And I would try and build up my personal brand that way as being the guy who distills difficult to find information from these obscure, obscure obscure sources to make it easy for the masses to find. That would be how I would start. And then I would make a YouTube channel where I do exactly the same thing. So the idea would be that I would take the, like I, w- I would create once and chop multiple times. This is something that Gary Vee says quite a lot. Um, one pillar of content, i.e. the summary of this paper, and then chop it into Twitter, blog, YouTube, Instagram, whatever I want to. That would be how I would start to rebuild from the ground up. 
So you wouldn't go back to doing the medical student stuff, how to get into med school, how I ranked first in Cambridge. You'd go straight to this kind of stuff. Yes. Um, I'd probably still make a video about how I ranked first in Cambridge just because it's a good clickbait title. I wouldn't make any kind of getting into med school stuff. I think that is a territory. I like, I get so many calls from, from medical students, usually first or second year, usually Asians who say, hey, I want to make a business. I want to make money online. Why don't I teach BMAT or UKCAT? And I, I just think, oh God, because that is literally the, it's the lowest hanging fruit that anyone, any Asian with a shred of entrepreneurialism is going to want to do that low hanging fruit of let me teach BMAT and UKCAT. And like, fine, that's, that's literally exactly what I did. But back in 2012, when I was doing it, there were a lot fewer people in the market. At the time, it was a lot harder to make a pretty looking website. So by just having a pretty looking website, I could differentiate our services in a way that other people couldn't. But this, these days, it's 2020. Every single year, 10 of these new companies start and 10 of these new companies flop because everyone re realizes, oh, there's money to be made here. Why don't I undercut the market? And I don't know, like, it's it, it's kind of fun to do. It's it's a good, easy business to start if you want to learn about business. It certainly beats trying to do like an online business course or whatever else people want to do at the time. But I think there are so many better things you could do uh, that are a bit more unique rather than this very well-trodden, why don't I private tutor people about UK cat type situation. So that's kind of, I, I feel very strongly about this because I feel like a lot of medical students who are very much like me are wasting their time tutoring UK cat when they could be doing something so much, so much more fulfilling, more interesting, more so, 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 so something that teaches them more than just, hey guys, this is how section one of the BMAT works. Yeah, it's kind of like the the hello world of the business, the Asian medical student <laughs> entrepreneurship world. Absolutely, yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Nice, and that formula you've given—that's quite interesting. I wasn't expecting that, but with that formula, do you think it's something that would work? You know, in a hundred different universes, every alley would end up being successful, or do you think there's still a lot of luck to it? I think I I can't imagine why it wouldn't work. I think the only reason why it wouldn't work is that um, if I were to not have, there's two things that, that are needed for this. There, there is faith and there is consistency. Provided you've got the consistency and you can maintain the faith that at some point it will work, then it just will work. Like it is absolutely bound to. Like I cannot imagine a universe in which a well put together website, blog, nicely designed, nicely curated that has summaries of books and summaries of podcasts and summaries of scientific papers. I cannot imagine a world in which that would not be successful. The only world in which that would not be successful is if someone doesn't stick with it for two years. Um, but given everything that I've done over the last like eight years of doing this sort of stuff, I would tell myself that I'm not expecting any growth at all. And I think a mistake that people go through is they're like, well, I've written my first blog post, but no one's reading it. And it's like, all right, mate, you know, <laughs> write a blog post a week for the next two years and then come back to me and see if no one's, if, if still no one's reading it. Because at that point, you, you, at, at that point, you can start to expect something. But at the start, you've got to put stuff out into the void. You've got to shout into the open and no one's going to listen, but you've got to keep doing it to have any chance at, at making it big. Okay, awesome. And you've spoken a little bit about it, but what exactly do you mean by consistency? What does that look like? Uh, at least once a week. So I think twice a week, three times a week is even better but at least once a week doing the thing, showing up every single week, um, sending up an email newsletter. That's a very easy thing to do. That's one of the things that most changed my writing habits because I like had a blog in 2016 and I, w I intended to write a blog post every week, um, but it just never happened. I wrote like three blog posts in two years or something stupid like that. But then in 2018, when I started my email newsletter, uh, it was like April, 2018, you know, for the last 112 weeks or whatever, I've, I've sent an email newsletter out every single Sunday I think I've missed two weeks where I forgot about it and had to send it on Monday morning instead. But, you know, that is 
112 weeks of consistency of like consistently writing something, putting something out there. Some some weeks I kind of thought, oh crap, it's like midnight on Sunday. I don't know what to write. Let me just make something up. Um, and a few of those have actually really resonated with the people. I, I made up this <laughs> random thing called the write-off principle, uh, where it's like, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you, you, you can decide to write the rest of the day off and, and do something unproductive. But I spelt it like R-E-I-T-O-F-F. So it's, it's sounding as if it was like some German philosopher dude who came, who came up with this thing. Uh, and loads of people emailed being like, oh my God, this write-off principle thing has changed my life. And I still get tweets about it being like, oh yeah, I love your write-off principle. And that was just some drivel that I came up with, like, you know, because I had to send an email out. And so I think if you can apply consistency to whatever you're doing and just sort of keep showing up week after week, eventually it just kind of grows and, and good things will happen. But you can't predict a good things that will happen. That's sort of the point of this. You're doing what David Perel call, calls like creating a serendipity vehicle. You're creating this thing that allows people to find you and your stuff even while you're sleeping. And I think that's kind of the aim of this building personal brand stuff. Awesome. So a lot of for a lot of people, an email newsletter is quite I don't know, it's quite old fashioned. Like, I don't think a lot of, it would resonate with a lot of people. Like, why should I set up a newsletter? I mean, are you saying in particular a newsletter is a good idea to set up or is it just one of many things you could do? I'm saying everyone should have an email newsletter. I'm saying everyone should have a mailing list because uh, everyone has email. It's the one thing that everyone probably checks every day. I think if you're a secondary school student and you don't have a good reason for using email, then fine. You, you and your friends probably don't check email. But as soon as you get to university where all communication still I think is probably done by email. I don't think every society that you sign up to at university is using Microsoft Teams or Slack to communicate right now. I think they're all still sort of using email to kind of get memos out. And especially when you start going into the, into the world of work, especially if you signed up to any kind of online platform, I, everyone uses email for everything. And the nice thing about a, a mailing list is that it's the only thing that you actually control. Like, I don't own my audience on YouTube. I don't own my, own my audience on Instagram, but I do own the emails on my mailing list. So I can do whatever I want with them. And the idea behind a mailing list is that those people have signed up to actively hear from me every week. And so in the future, in a few years time, if I want to write a book or launch a product, I've got this mailing list of a few thousand, a few tens of thousands of people that will immediately want to hear what I have to say. And I think that's the value of a mailing list. Um, and so I think everyone should have an email newsletter. Talk me through the YouTube points. You mentioned that you don't own your YouTube audience. Um, is that a kind of a worry for you? Because you're sitting on this massive audience now. Of, I, last time I checked, it was over 700,000 subscribers. Um, is that kind of a worry in the back of your head that you don't really own this and an, a change in the algorithm could mess things up potentially? Yeah, so I think whenever you're building something on, on a platform, like building an audience on YouTube or building an audience on, on Instagram, you've got to be slightly concerned about the platform risk. Um, like, you know, the people who are big on Vine, and then Vine disappears. Like, where does that audience go? And some of them took to Twitter. Actually, some of them took to Snapchat. Some of them took to YouTube and were very successful at it. But the ones who didn't lost their audiences essentially overnight. And that is a bad thing. I don't think that'll happen with YouTube. I think, you know, YouTube is now, quote, too big to fail. But, you know, we've heard that before. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that keeps me up at night <laughs> is the level of risk that I am taking by having all my eggs in the YouTube basket, proportionally speaking. And so it's a really, it's a big priority of mine to grow the YouTube audience for sure, but also to try and funnel some of that audience away into the podcast, Instagram, email newsletter with the email newsletter, the mailing list being like the ultimate destination, because ultimately that's the only thing that I control. Um, so that's kind of where I'm trying to go towards. How do I get people from YouTube to sign up to the mailing list? And how do I make my own personal website, which is another thing that I will control. How do I make my own personal website a destination where people would be happy to go, even if my YouTube wasn't a thing? So I think 
I think I think it's important to start off in one domain because if kind of people listening to this suddenly are right tomorrow I'm going to start a YouTube channel and an Instagram and an email newsletter and a podcast that's not really going to work like I think it's worth starting one at a time and just making sure you can do all of them consistently. It's like sort of forming any kind of new habit. You don't want to form 10 new habits at a time. You don't want to start meditating and reading an hour each day and doing stretching and doing pull-ups. Like it, the, these things won't work if you try them all at once. But if you start with a single thing and then add to it over time as it becomes more sustainable and more reasonable, then you kind of get the cross-pollination between the different platforms. And so if you grow on YouTube and you want to create an email newsletter, then great, you've got people who can, you can funnel into that and, and vice versa. So I'd suggest starting off with one, but then diversifying because you don't want the platform risk. What are the benefits that a personal brand has brought you? And more generally, what are the benefits it could bring just sort of a regular medic? Yeah, so I think everyone has a personal brand, whether you like it or not. Like the, a personal brand is just your professional reputation. And so whether or not you're actively thinking about it, you do have a professional reputation. Everyone listening to this does or will do at some point. Um, if you think of consultants that you've got on placements, they've got personal brands. They might have their website where they advertise their private practice. They might be somewhat well-known in the field of upper GI surgery for you know doing this esophagectomy technique and presenting about it at a conference. Like We all have personal brands to some capacity. Um, and so I think given that we all have it, and you can't get away from it, you can't get away from a personal reputation. It makes sense to think about how to curate your personal brand, your professional reputation in a way that you want. So for me, what's my kind of personal brand? I don't really care too much about like niche medical topics these days. You're not going to find me writing articles about, I don't know, GLP-1 antagonists and things, unless they relate to anti-aging, uh, in which case, fair enough, <laughs> because that's something that I'm, that I'm interested in. But you might find me doing sort of some teaching about like medical stuff or this general personal development, health, happiness, productivity, that side of things. And so I think it's about figuring out what you want your personal brand to be and then just kind of getting started with it. And in terms of the benefits that it's it's brought, like, you know, uh, it's just it's 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 one of those things where where the benefits are things that you can't really have predicted. So like obviously for me, like having having a personal brand in some capacity means like the 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 immediate benefit or rather the, the most obvious benefit of having a personal brand is then you can then monetize it further down the line, right? So like if I want to sell something, if I want to make a new class on Skillshare, if I want to, I don't know, write a book, I know I've got this audience of people who will buy the thing. And so there is a very clear monetary return on investment in having a personal brand. But on top of that, there are the other opportunities you get that you wouldn't really have predicted. So, you know, people like you reaching out to me via podcast and then kind of making friends with people over the internet. I've started doing these like YouTube live streams with people that I admire from all around the world. And now these people have become friends. And so if I want to, you know, go to Oxford and hang out with Derek Sivers or go to, I don't know, America and hang out with like other YouTubers that I've looked up to, I now can because I've connected with them through the platform, through the personal brand. And so the relationship and opportunity side of it things is one that uh, it's 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 all very serendipitous like you can never really predict these things but the more you put yourself out there the more of a surface area you create for these serendipitous events to happen to you uh, and that is another big reason as to why i'd recommend a personal brand for anyone but i think one of the issues with medics that we sort of we as a race have as medics is that we tend not to do stuff unless there is a clear roi on it like we think, how will this benefit my CV? How will this increase the amount of points I get for my FPAS application so I can maybe apply to a London deanery so I can maybe get 87 points rather than 84 points? It, we, we think in these ridiculous ways that are very much, I need to do A in order to lead to B. 
And that is just kind of the mindset that we've all sort of grown up with that, you know, get the good grades, get the good A-levels, get to a good university, get your good F1 job, get your good uh, ST3 job, and then <laughs> maybe you'll be happy for another life. Um, and so I, every, almost every medic that I've spoken to, and this was certainly a problem for me, like we all find it really hard to do stuff if there's no clear value add like immediately from it. And building a personal brand is one of those things where you never know what it's going to lead to. You just have to have the faith and you have to have the consistency. <laughs> and if you have faith and consistency, you will succeed in whatever definition, you, uh, whatever definition of success you want to use. So I want to shift gears a little bit to productivity slash effectiveness. And you define productivity as useful output divided by time multiplied by fun. Can you, can you explain that? Yeah. So what is productivity? Um, most definitions of productivity would probably say it's something to do with uh, output per unit resource. So, for example, if you're a work, if you're a, if you're a factory owner, the productivity of your factory might be your output per worker, and then you would have a more productive factory if you can get more output for each worker. Um, and that's sort of like an industrial revolutionary type definition of productivity. I think in the modern day, and and for for kind of people, productivity is more a case of output per unit time, like how much stuff can I get done uh, in as little time as possible? And that would be make me a quote, more productive person, whatever that, however that, that's useful. Um, but I think we need to add to that. We need to add the caveat that this needs to be useful output divided by time, because there's no point in spinning on a hamster wheel and just outputting loads of stuff if it's not very useful. So we want to define what useful means to us, like what are our goals, even though I don't like goals? Uh, what's the point? What are we aiming for? And then kind of if we can increase our useful output over time, so incre increase our useful output or decrease our time, we're becoming more productive. And I think the real insight here, the one that I kind of came up with randomly in the shower, is that when people ask me, how are you so productive? It, it's not quite that I do more useful output or that I take, I spend less time doing it. It's mostly that I just have a lot of fun doing all of the things that I'm doing. And so I think there needs to be this sort of, uh, I, I call it the, I, I call it F in my productivity equation, this like fun factor. Um, this thing that everything gets multiplied by because the more fun you can have, the more productive you're just naturally going to be. So you can have the same useful output over time, but if you're having twice as much fun as someone else, you are just in, implicitly inherently going to be more productive. Uh, and there was a tweet by Tiago Forte recently, which is a, 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 just like two days ago, where he said that you can't compete against someone who's having fun. And I was like, oh, that is so good. Like you really can't compete against people who are having fun doing the stuff that they're doing. And so when people ask, you know, what book should I read? What language should I learn to code in? What should I do with my with my life? A, a big part of the answer is just do what you enjoy because, you know, it A, makes you more productive and B, it just makes life more fun. So that that's kind of my productivity equation. Productivity equals useful output over time multiplied by F and F is the fun factor. So you talk about useful output. What Can you expand a bit on that? What's, what's not useful output? What's the difference? Okay, so it kind of depends on what what scale we're talking about. So for example... Let's say I'm just starting out a YouTube channel. What w uh, My kind of unit of useful output would be videos released. Um, I might think I'm being productive by just listening to loads of podcasts, but that wouldn't really be useful output. It would just sort of be, be output in that, in that, in that okay, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to a lot, of, a, a lot of podcasts. Or I might feel I'm being productive by taking notes on like loads of stuff that I'm reading. But unless I'm kind of, producing something useful, something that I've defined as being useful as a result of it, I'm not actually being productive. And so like for me these days, um, 
at a diff- sort of I'm I'm at, the, at at a different level of scale now where it's not a case of how do I bring myself to make a YouTube video. It's a case of how do I make the best YouTube video that I can. Things like th- things that feel productive might not be useful. So, for example, spending ages researching some niche bit about the Microsoft Surface. If I you know spending five hours researching that. If I'm not going to make a video on it, and if my audience doesn't care about the niche aspects of it, then that is not useful output. That is just stuff that I've done to spin spin the hamster wheel. Uh, whereas what I'm thinking of, like, okay, how do I make this output more useful? Where are the bits in the system where I can personally apply leverage, where I can use my own brain, my own insight to generate value that someone else couldn't do? So, like, I've got I've got two full time team members now, and often I think to myself, okay, what is something that I should be doing versus something that they should be doing? And that would be how I define useful. So I think the the, the reason to have useful in this productivity equation is that um, it, we you can kind of define it however you want. And we all kind of know what is useful to us and what is like, what's actually moving the needle, what is actually giving us the results that we want, however we define that relative to the things where we're, we just sort of feel like, yeah, I mean, I spent all day listening to these podcasts and reading these books, but I mean, I didn't really produce anything. So that's sort of what I mean by useful. Talk me through your team then. So yeah, in organizing this interview, I noticed that you've got a personal assistant and that must be a first for an FY2 doctor. So talk me through how that came about and what benefits that brings. Yeah, so having a team. Uh, this is kind of, kind of interesting. It's probably not relevant to a lot of people, but that's fine. Um, once you get beyond a certain, like w- with the whole YouTube thing, I think People always say like, how do you, how do you have time to make videos when you're a full time doctor? Blah blah blah. Um, and at the start, I was doing everything myself. And at the, at the start, it's about kind of really being super productive, like personally productive, uh, organizing your time in a way that means you can batch film videos, and then you can kind of learn how to edit and learn how to edit really quickly because any time you can shave off in editing will be time saved that you can spend on more things. And it becomes this sort of uh, challenge where you're juggling lots of balls and trying to keep everything afloat. But then once you get to a point where you're making enough money from the thing that you can then look to scale up, at that point, hiring your first team member becomes like incredible. So like, I think last, this time last year, like around about June, 2019, was when I first started working with a freelance video editor. And immediately that was just magic. Um, This guy was charging 25 pounds an hour and he was spending about four or five hours per video. So this was about 125 pounds video. Um, and I was making around about that amount, amount of money from AdSense every month. So from, from YouTube ads, I'd be making about 500 pounds a month. And therefore I knew that, okay, I can physically afford for this guy to edit four of my videos a month. But then just off being able to offload the editing in that sense meant that I could spend my own time doing the bits that were unique to me. And like, I thought that, oh, you know, no one can really match my editing style. But then within a few videos and with a bit of feedback, this guy was matching my editing style. So I realized, actually, I'm not that special. You know, editing videos is not that hard. You just cut out the pauses and the hundred mistakes, and then you add a bit of, you know, timestamps and a few pictures here and there. Um, so this guy was just like editing my videos. And it was, it, was, it was incredible. It's like I'd film a video and then send it to him via Google Drive. And then like within two days, I would get a complete video back and I'd be like, oh my God, this is like, this feels like a superpower. And so that was for a few months. And then I sort of took the plunge after, after chatting to, uh, a friend and mentor about hiring a full-time employee. And at the time I really couldn't afford this. Like, I think at the time I was not even making that amount of money per month that I could justify the salary. But what my friend and mentor said is that like, when you have a full-time employee, you'll find things for them to do. And you'll, you'll find magically that your output will increase and that your revenue will increase because you're going to be very, very incentivized to give this person stuff to do because you're actually actively paying them. 
And so I put out a post on my website looking for someone to be a head of content, to help write content, to help edit stuff. And this guy, Christian, from Romania, of all places, uh, applied and he got the job because he was amazing. And initially I thought I'd hire someone who lived in Cambridge, who I could meet once a week in person and that sort of stuff. Um, but this guy, Christian, he was really good at writing, really good at editing. He was also a graphic designer. He'd been working for a YouTuber for like 10 years. Like he, he knew what he was doing. So initially I wasn't looking for a full-time editor, but you know, this guy, Christian came along, who's like a writer, editor and a jack of all trades. And I was like, sick. Okay. So he was the first full-time hire. Um, and then, so there was, there was him on the team for a few months. And then a few months later, I think around about January, 2020, this guy called Angus emailed, he stumbled across the, the, the job posting, which I'd posted on the Cambridge careers website. He just came across that and said, Hey, you're still looking for someone. He just graduated from Cambridge. He would want to be a journalist. So he was doing some freelance projects. So I said, Hey, yeah, let's, you know, try you try you out for like one day a week, uh, for writing some scripts. But then he was just amazing. He was like really, really good. He was just churning out the content. And so then it went up to two days a week and then three days a week and then four days a week. And then he lost some of his other gigs thanks to coronavirus. So I was like, sick, I can snap this guy up. So now he's, he's been full time for a few months and it's, it's been amazing. Uh, and so it, it's, it's probably stuff that isn't applicable to most people, but like as soon, the advice I would give is that as soon as you get to a point where you've got revenue coming in from your side project, from your thing, at that point, you really want to think about hiring a team because the possibilities it unlocks are just absolutely incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, when you've explained it, it makes a lot of sense and opens you up to do a lot of, do what you're good at rather than wasting time and other stuff. If you could deliver one six week course to medical students, what would the course teach? Um, I would want to teach the basics of graphic design, the basics of making stuff look pretty, like what is good typography? What is good spacing when you have text and stuff? Because tweaking typography just a little bit adds such a huge amount of production value to whatever you're doing that is just absolutely insane. Like if you look at posters in most conferences, in most medical conferences, they look absolutely terrible. And the reason they look terrible is because people use bad colors and people use bad typography. And it's so easy to, to tweak typography and colors that even just spending an hour going over examples of what is good line spacing? What is good, like, you know, letter spacing? What's a good line? Uh, the, the, this sort of stuff just immediately makes every single thing you do for the rest of your life, every bit of output you produce, whether it's a physical poster for a conference or a PowerPoint presentation or a teaching slides, or even like, I don't know, uh, even, even like a, a physical paper, like everything just looks better if you can have decent typography. So I would spend one week <laughs> doing the basics <laughs> of graphic design and typography and stuff. I would also want to teach um, video editing. I think like there was a tweet going around that uh, video editing is the new coding. Uh, and given that video is, is, is keep, keeps on going up as a platform, for someone to understand the basics of video editing is just really, really helpful. Uh, because of all this coronavirus stuff, there's all these sort of virtual conferences now. And uh, recently we submitted something to like ASME, Association for Medical Educators or something like that. Um, and they were asking for video submissions. And because I knew how to edit videos, ours was pretty good. Um, and the others one, the others weren't. They were just recording a Zoom call because no one else had to edit videos. That's another very basic skill that's very, very easy to learn that you'll just have for the rest of your life. Uh, beyond that, I would sort of set like a personal project where everyone needs to, everyone, like by the end of the course, everyone will have their own website. Everyone will have their own real name on a domain online. Everyone will have an email newsletter and encourage them. And basically for the, for the next, for the rest of the four weeks, I would kind of sell like every, every week they would write some kind of assignment based on something that they're interested in, something that they want to write about and send out an email newsletter. And so by the end of it, they've sent four email newsletters out. They've got the website, they've got everything sorted and that will set them up for success later in life. However you want to define success. 
uh, those would be what I would teach in a six-week course. If someone wants to learn how to make the first part, make stuff look pretty, what what resource would you recommend for that? Um, I would so th- there is a Chrome extension called Musli M U Z dot L I, which replaces your new tab thing on Chrome or Safari or whatever. It, re- it replaces with like web design and graphic design inspiration. And I think just that as a very basic minimum, where when you open a new tab, you see examples of good design and stuff that looks pretty. I think that would be a good starting point. Um, and then over time, the more you see this new tab screen, which is something we look at all the time anyway, um, the more the more you kind of appreciate what makes a design look pretty. And so the next time you're writing a proposal or PowerPoint presentation or poster for a conference or whatever, you start applying these principles and then you just sort of tweak around and be like, what, why does that look nice? Why does that not look nice? Um, because otherwise, like, I think if you, if you haven't seen what good typography looks like, you won't appreciate it when your own typography looks amateur. But so the more you can, like, just, like, get a, get a sense of appreciation as to what, what looks pretty like, why does the Apple website always look so nice? A big part of that is the typography and the, le- and the letter spacing. If you tweaked the letter spacing, it would look absolutely terrible. You would think, oh, my God, who made this website? Like, why is it such an amateur? But you don't appreciate that unless you've seen lots of these websites and you think, oh, white space is important. Line height is important. They're, they're these little things. So that would be kind of the starting point. Awesome. That's really useful. Now, the kind of the final part of the questions I wanted to talk about were in terms of side hustles and passive income. So quite mm. recently, you put out a video which was called something like, this is how much I earn as a doctor and YouTuber. And the crux of that video was that you have all of these different income streams. You have YouTube, Skillshare, your company, and being a doctor is only a small part of that. Being in that position, how does that change how you approach medicine, not being reliant on that salary? Yeah, so the whole like passive income lifestyle is what I've been chasing ever since I read the four hour work week in like 2012 or 2011 or something. Um, And to now be in the position where medicine only makes up like a small chunk of my overall income is very nice. Uh, the, The things that it does is that partly it gives me the freedom to do something like like what I'm doing from August to kind of taking an F3 here. But instead of thinking, oh, I need to get a clinical fellow job in London doing something, or I need, I need to think about how I can get onto a locum bank and, and things like that. Instead of doing all of that, I can literally kind of do whatever I want. So it gives me the option of, for example, traveling the world if I want to, and if, you know, the lockdown rules get, uh, you know, opened up, opened up by then. So there's kind of that sense of freedom that comes from it. But I think also when you're not reliant on medicine for your income, I think like in, in, in the job at the moment, like a lot, there's all, all sorts of issues with, with like the rotors and with coronavirus. And it, it seems like a lot of my colleagues are struggling. And I, I see messages in like the WhatsApp group and things where people kind of quibbling over, oh, are we going to be, be paid for these extra hours? How does it work? And uh, also ch- ch- chatting to some of the registrars and, and some of the other trainees, uh, there's a real sense of like, okay, I'm trying to get on the property ladder. How do I sort of get the money for a house I've, I've got a kid so and, and my and my partner's a doctor as well and like how do we make this happen where with childcare? care like there's all these different all these like money problems that are associated like even even when you're a doctor like the money problems don't go away like we all struggle to get onto the property ladder for example um and so having you know this dream of multiple streams of passive income means that if you want to get on the property ladder it's not that hard <laughs> like you don't have to worry about it and so you know it's that it's that thing that I don't know, people say that money doesn't solve all your problems, but it does solve all of your money problems. And so that is one of the huge, yeah, it's like, uh, I think there's like, there's sort of like four domains of life. I've, I've started to think about it in, in this sense. There's, there's, there's money, physical health, 
mental health, happiness and stuff and relationships. And if you can sort the money side of it out, then you can focus on physical health, happiness and relationships. And that's actually the important stuff. The money stuff just tends to get in the way for most people. Uh, it tends to get in the way of us enjoying what would otherwise be a happy and fulfilled life. And so I think like the more you can, the, 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 the sooner you can solve the money problems, the sooner you can sort of focus on the other stuff that actually matters, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess you're in this position where you, you don't need to be a doctor. You're not doing it for the money now. You're just doing it because you enjoy it, I guess. Yeah, sort of. Um, so I, I've just got signed off for my F2 ARCP thingy. So I'm now officially finished F2. Uh, and I'm just, I'm like counting down the days until August the 3rd when I, when I leave. Um, it's not, it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's just that I have having now done it for like eight years and now having this option of doing other things, it's like, I'm just sort of, sort of excited by the possibilities that the freedom affords. And like, yeah, I want to go back into medicine. I think a good long-term goal is part-time medicine, maybe two or three days a week. Um, but at least in the short term, while I have no responsibilities and no family and, you know, don't have to worry about paying a mortgage and things like that, at least in the short term, it makes sense to uh, just just kind of explore a little bit and try try out other things. Because I think otherwise it's very easy for medicine to become all-encompassing. There are so many people I know who, for example, like really great musicians or actors or dancers or whatever, and then they did medicine and now they don't do any of that because they don't have time. They're just doing medicine. So I want to spend a few years kind of exploring other interests, learning new skills, get better at guitar, piano, singing, want to learn ice skating, want to yeah, do all these things that previously being a medical student and then having a full-time job meant that I could use the excuse of, I don't really have the time for this. So that's kind of the areas that I'm most excited to explore now. Is it weird being on the ward and you're kind of playing a different game to everyone else? Like you mentioned the whole property ladder, you know, um, are we going to get paid for this shift, this sort of thing. I'm guessing that a lot of people, their end goal is, okay, I want to be a consultant in X specialty. But I guess your goal is very different. It's I want to work medicine for two days and have all of these other cool side projects going. And well, I guess your main projects as well. Um, so is, is that weird? Is it like, is it weird to relate to people? Um, I think it's, it's less weird than I thought it would be. I, I think more and more people are coming around to this idea that medicine is not an all-encompassing thing. And like, you know, in, in, in F1, I was working at Addenbrooke's Hospital and, and in, in every placement, when, when, when people would find out about, about the YouTube thing, they'd be like, oh my God, this is so good. It's so good that you have something outside of medicine. Uh, the, you know, the upper GI consultants were like very, very, very supportive. And like one of them apparently now, even now he says to his new F1s that, oh, you know, my F1s from last year, you know, they had all these things going on the side. What's, what's your side project? Um, the other F1 who was working with me on upper GI is a Grammy nominated music producer. So wow. he's taken a year out of medicine to he's been signed to Sony and he's been sort of like producing music and stuff. Uh, and it seems like, like, while my mum might say like, look, man, you know, focus on your exams, focus on becoming a consultant and then you can, and then you can do all this stuff. It seems like most of the consultants that I speak to say, well, actually, if you've got the option, yeah, I think traveling with the world while you're young and you don't have to worry about money, etc. I think that's a really good thing. So I don't know. Uh, I thought it would be weirder than it was, which is why I don't really mention it. Um, but kind of word, word gets around, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as twatish as that sounds. And people are generally very supportive. So it's, it's really nice. Have there been any kind of downsides from either in your medical life or your personal life from having this kind of, you know, this clout as a YouTuber? Any downsides to it? I had one complaint when I was an F1. Uh, I made a video about how I use uh, my iPad in, at work. And I was, uh, I, I came across as a little bit blasé about data security. And so, <laughs> Someone sent an email. Some, someone sent a complaint into my hospital, being like, "This doctor is completely blasé about data security." 
And I was like, okay, fair enough. I can see how it would come across that way. So I t- took the video down, reshot it, added more bits to show that actually, actually the data security is not an issue, et cetera. <laughs> that was the only sort of actively negative thing that's happened as a result of it. Otherwise, no, like there's no, there's no real downsides. Occasionally I get recognized by patients. That's kind of funny. It's kind of cool. It's always a bit of banter for the nurses on the ward. And yeah, it's just, I think people often worry uh, that, oh, you know, if you, if you could become famous, then it's going to be really bad because you're going to get mobbed. Uh, but I think like this, you, you, this whole like becoming famous thing, there's like such, such a spectrum of it. There's like, you know, no one knows who you are at all. And then there's sort of being, I don't know, who's famous, like Brad Pitt or like Beyonce or like Ed Sheeran, that level where you physically can't go on the streets. And like my level is much, 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 much closer, obviously, to the place where no one knows who you are. You know, even with an audience of like 700,000 subscribers on YouTube, that's kind of people all around the world. It means that maybe if I'm roaming around London once or twice, I might get recognized on the street. But it would be the sort of person who watches nerdy videos about tech and productivity and study stuff. Like the sort of person I would love to talk to. It's not just like a random person. So like there really aren't any downsides to kind of being famous for this, for the right sort of people. Being famous to the people that you want to be famous to. Like I have no interest in being, I don't know, famous to like, you know, the general public, but I would love to be famous to people who care about tech and productivity and care about becoming effective students. That's, that's kind of my, my tribe, my people. So yeah, they're, they're, I can't really think of any downsides beyond the, that one complaint that I got. <laughs> so, okay. That's really interesting. And I guess it's a bit surprising as well, because I think the initial reaction is if I put anything out as a medic, it's going to get criticized. It's going to get complaint to the GMC, uh, but it's not really happened with you, which is kind of reassuring. Yeah, I think people worry about the GMC thing a lot. Like, oh, you know, am I really allowed to, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's 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 such a gut defense, isn't it? Like, you think, like, immediately, if you think, I'm going to start a YouTube channel and put my face out there, you think, oh, crap, what's the GMC going to say? Like, why on earth would the GMC care unless you're actively being a dick? If you're not actively being a dick, like, they, they you know, <laughs> the, the GMC's job is to protect patients. Obviously, don't go around talking about the patients that you've seen that day. Like, these are basic things, basic confidentiality rules. Beyond that, would the GMC care if you react to some medical memes? No, probably not. Would the GMC care if you reviewed a book? Probably not. Like, who cares? I think this, this GMC thing is just a, it's a very easy external thing to blame our fear of putting ourselves out there on that. Oh, I'm worried about what people, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worried that I might not get a good rating from my consultant for the placement because they might think that actually my whole interest isn't medicine. My whole interest is this YouTube. Like, it's all, it's all just BS. It's all just excuses for the fear that we have for putting ourselves out there. And the sooner we can get over that fear, the sooner life becomes more colorful and interesting and, and stuff. Has, has there ever been a topic that you've, or a video that you've not done because you're worried about GMC stuff? Not really, because I'm worried about GMC stuff. Like uh, when uh, a few a, f- a few months ago, when when the coronavirus thing was first starting out, I floated the idea past my team that should we make a re- reacting to coronavirus memes <laughs> video, and they unanimously felt that this was this would be in poor taste. Uh, whereas I was thinking it would just be a bit of banter, really. So <laughs> we didn't do that video because I was like, okay, fine, this would probably be in poor taste right now. Maybe in a few years' time, we could react to some coronavirus <laughs> memes once it's all kind of blown over. But I've, I've, I've never not released something. Uh, but, like, but like also the stuff that I release on YouTube is fairly PG. It's not like I'm doing anything particularly blasé or, mm-hmm. or particularly, you know, maverick. Uh, I'm not going to forest and like filming, filming, filming suicides. I'm, I'm not doing anything particularly bad. Therefore, I really don't need to worry about the GMC. There was, there was one like annoying instance where I have a friend who is a plastic surgery trainee and I had like a, a subungual hematoma. I had like this, this hematoma on my finger. 
um, and I, I I happened to be visiting him for an for an unrelated reason, and he he said, oh, you know, that's kind of bad, and he offered to take the nail bed off and sort of remove it and put dressing on it, and so we filmed all of that, and it made and it was gonna it featured in a vlog at the end, and it was like it was really 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 cool. It was like you know filming hand surgery being done on my nail, and it was awesome. Uh, and like my reaction to getting the anesthetic inserted, it was really, really cool. But then he messaged me afterwards being like, hey, I've spoken to my educational supervisor. He thinks it's probably a bad idea. We probably shouldn't upload that video. And I was like, why the hell not? Like, you know, I'm the patient I've given consent. He was like, yeah, but what's a GMC going to say? And I was so annoyed. I was like, oh, this was so good. This is like incredible footage that as a doctor you have access to. And as a, as a member of general property, you just really don't. And he was worried about the GMC for no reason. And he said that, yeah, no, I get it. But I, I made the mistake of asking my supervisor and he said no. And now I can't just release the video because he said no already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all worry way too much about what the GMC has to say about stuff that the GMC really do not care about. I actually emailed the GMC about this video. I said, would it be reasonable? And they said, <laughs> as long as you have the appropriate consent and you're not breaking patient confidentiality, then it's fine. We don't care. So I was like, great. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> the penultimate thing I wanted to ask you was like a lot of medics listening will have their own side projects. So a lot of them will do creative stuff, whether it's YouTube, podcasting, singing, whatever. Um, but can you talk through the element of kind of monetizing that? Does that, does that change how you do it? Do you, do you recommend doing that? Cause it must, you know, you do a lot of these things just because you enjoy doing them and bringing money into it must kind of, I don't know, take away from that a little bit or make it worse. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in that, that everyone should try and monetize their hobbies and maybe everyone is a bit strong. I don't think it's for everyone. My housemate Molly, for example, she enjoys taking photos of food. She's got a food Instagram, cambridge.foodie. Check it out. Link in video description, blah, blah, blah. Um, she says that she doesn't care about the monetization. But if push came to shove, like she really does, like she gets free food now from restaurants. She loves it. She's been offered hotel stays to review the restaurants. Like that is a really cool and interesting part of enjoying food. Like the monetization layer adds to it rather than takes away from it. And I don't know anyone, uh, if, if you have literally zero interest in making money or zero interest in business, maybe you've got some kind of trust fund where you don't need to worry about money. Even then, I don't know. I, I can't think of anyone I know who, if offered, if, if, if the choice was, hey, so you're really into this art thing, would you be opposed if people started paying you for it? Very few people would say no to that. People Occasionally people might say, yeah, well, it's, it's just a hobby for me. And, oh, I don't think my art's good enough to sell. But if like I offered them like 300 pounds for their artwork, they would freaking sell it to me because they'd be like, oh my God, I can now sell my art. And so I think, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on people monetizing their hobbies because I think in addition to then the hobby side of it, you also then have the extra fun of trying to make money from it. And in trying to make money from it, you learn a whole load of different skills. You learn how to write stuff that sells. You learn how to create something that other people find valuable enough to make money from. There's just, and, and there's that very exciting thing that, oh my God, someone is actually paying me for my work that I've done outside of my day, my day job. I can't believe this is real. It's like when you, first, when you make your first dollar on the internet, your life changes because you're like, bloody hell, like I can actually make real money on the internet. What the hell? It, it, it changes the game completely. And so monetizing a hobby is fantastic because it adds those, it sort of adds, adds the other layer. I think relying on your hobby to make money is when it starts to get bad. Like if you need to make a full-time living from your art, at that point, you're spending most 90% of your time on the business side and 10% of your time on the art side. But if you don't need to make a full-time living from your art, if you're quite happy making a few pounds, a few dollars, maybe a few hundred dollars here and there from your art, that is objective, like in my opinion, objectively more fun than just doing the art by itself. So I am huge on everyone monetizing their hobbies to whatever extent they can. 
you've kind of hit this kind of medical student nirvana. You've got this YouTube um, career, six med, et cetera, et cetera, podcast, Skillshare, everything. Um, and I did, I did a year of business school. And one of the things a business school teacher said was that it's worse being Apple because the only way is down. And I'm curious about what your kind of SWOT analysis of is of your position right now. So what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats? Yeah, so I don't really think a lot about the position right now. I tend to be quite future focused in that I'm trying to optimize for the sort of life. Well, I mean, I think we're all ultimately all optimizing for happiness and meaning. And happiness loosely defined as I'm enjoying the stuff I'm doing right now. And meaning loosely defined as I'm being useful to other people. And I think if we have that kind of combination of happiness and meaning, uh, you know, in addition to the money problems being sorted, physical health, mental health, relationships, then we're kind of winning at life, like, you know, even though it's not a competition. So that's kind of how I think about it. And so the stuff that I'm doing right now, like, yeah, it's a ridiculously privileged and incredible position to be in, but I don't spend any time sort of like patting myself on the back that, hey, well done, man, you've made passive income, whatever. It's, 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 just, it's just not a thing. The only thing that in my mind is, okay, how can, I, how can I take this good thing that I've got and how can I keep it going for the long term? The thing I think about all the time is, you know, will I still be relevant in 10 years time? Uh, and I think, okay, in 10 years time, will that, that generation still care about watching study with me videos? Possibly not. Okay, that means I need to find something else to be doing. And this sort of 10 year time horizon makes me think, okay, what are the sorts of videos that I can make today? What are the investments I can make today in kind of my website, my personal brand, that in 10 years time, they will age well with me rather than I'll age out of them, as it were. So for example, if you look at someone like Seth Godin, he's been writing a daily blog for the last like 30 years or something stupid like that. And Seth Godin, he's, he's written like dozens of books. He's a sort of world expert in marketing. He's seen as a thought leader in it. And he's quite old. He's a boomer. Yeah, he's been doing this for a long time. And that's fine. I think that's a good place to get to. Tim Ferriss, you know, he's been he's been doing this for the last like 15 years now. He wrote the 4-Hour Workweek in 2006. And he's only gotten bigger every year because he's expanded out. He hasn't just kind of rested on the laurels of that one success. He's written more books. He's got this podcast. He's adding value to the world in all these different ways. And so that's kind of what I think about now. It's like, okay, I've got this initial success, but how can I then think about what are the what are the aspects of it that I can that I know will be useful in 10 years time. And that's why stuff like, for, like, for example, I'm, we're redesigning my website to put all of my book reviews and summaries of books and summaries of podcasts on the website, because that's the sort of resource that if you have a summary of every book you've ever read, it is the sort of thing that compounds over time. It's not that people are going to be like, oh, actually this website has too many books on it and they're too detailed, therefore I'm not going to read it. Like it's the sort of thing that, oh my God, this guy's been writing book reviews for 15 years. Wow, this is amazing. And so I'm thinking, what are those sorts of things that I can do? I uh, started doing a lot of sort of interviewing people on my channel and sort of getting other people's expertise on board. I think that's sort of following the Tim Ferriss model, that there's only so far you can go if it's all about you, if it's like, you know, this is how I made the four-hour work week, this is how I make passive income. But as soon as, but when he made his podcast, his podcast then sort of took him to another level of success, right? Because now he's sort of actively promoting other people. And so that's kind of a direction where I'm trying to go with my YouTube channel. How can I actively promote these other people to be a sort of connector that adds value in those sorts of ways rather than purely just documenting my own stuff that this is how I studied for my exams. So those are the sorts of things that are going through my mind right now. But um, yeah, the thing I think about most often is this sort of 10 year, how, how do I stay relevant? That's super interesting. What's, what's one book that someone who's resonated a lot with what you've said what's one book they could go away right now and read that you think would be helpful um probably 
Show Your Work by Austin Kleon. It's like, it's very small. It takes about half an hour to read. And that was the book that encouraged me to start a personal blog. And without that book, I don't, I don't think I would have started my blog. I wouldn't have started my YouTube channel. That book changed my life. Um, Show Your Work by Austin Kleon would be what every single person should read who's gotten this far in the podcast and so anything has resonated with them. Awesome. Was there anything else you wanted to say? No, that's kind of it. I think there's sort of a, a message that I try and kind of preach whenever I have the chance to preach, which is that really think about what game you're playing. And I don't think we think about this enough. Like when you're in school, you're playing the game of, I want to get decent results so, so that I can get into a good university. And you're not really thinking much beyond that game. You're thinking, oh, I guess I'll be a doctor one day. That's kind of cool. When you're at university, you're thinking, okay, I, I want to play the game of maximizing my CV points because then I'll have a more competitive shot at my F1 deanery. Maybe if you're feeling super pro, you're like, yeah, I want that cardiothoracic ST3 number. And therefore I need to do all these things. I don't care about FPAS because obviously no one cares about what F1 deanery you have, but that, that cardiothoracic ST3 number, that is what I want. Um, that is the game that we play when we're in, in med school. Uh, and I think it's very easy to get caught up into playing these games without actually seriously questioning that, like, why are you playing that game? Like, what are you actually optimizing for? Um, and there's a, people I know, people that I've spoken to who have been optimizing for the, you know, I want my ST3 training number game. And in, in, in trying to optimize for that, they've not enjoyed their university experience. They've been sort of burning themselves out, working, working quote, too hard in the hope that, oh, maybe if I get one extra decile, maybe I'll get one extra point in my thing. Like, and sort of essentially pissing away six years of that university experience to play this game. And at some point you have to ask yourself, okay, like, what are we actually aiming for here? Like, I think most people would agree that, you know, happiness and meaning and fulfillment is probably some, a reasonable thing to shoot for. And if that's the case, do you really think that ST3 number in cardiothoracic is really going to make you happy, happy and fulfilled and, and meaningful and really going to justify the six years of pain that you put yourself through at university? Possibly not. If you speak to ST3, ST4 cardiothoracic trainees, are they all really loving life and feeling happy and fulfilled and feeling like they have meaningful lives? Probably not. If you ask them if they won the lottery, would they still do medicine? Most of them would probably say they'd go part-time, if not leave medicine completely. Like, I think whatever you do, just really think about like, what is the game that you're playing? And what are you really optimizing for? And then you can, you can kind of do what you want. If you decide that actually, I just freaking love cardiothoracic surgery, then by, by all means go for it. But at least you've thought about it. And for me, when I asked myself, what game am I playing? I realized that the game I've been playing early on was the game of how do I get CV points? And then I realized actually, why am I playing this game? And then like, even now, like the game I've been playing until, until very recently is how do I maximize my sources of passive income? And now I've gotten to a point where I sort of, I'm questioning that game. I'm like, okay, is that the game I want to continue to play? Like, I'm glad I've been playing that game for the last eight years, but I think now I'm at the point where I need to think about, okay, what's, what's the game that I now want to play? What is the game of kind of adding value to the world, uh, sort of happy, happiness, meaning, uh, meaning, et cetera, et cetera, without just trying to rack up the revenue numbers, which would be another very easy game to fall into. But then, yeah, at different intervals, we just want to ask ourselves, what's the game that we're playing? And then kind of on the same analogy of, of the game thing, um, I don't know how, how into, into board games you are, but like with a lot of kind of serious board games, there are, there are, there are different sort of, sorts of victory conditions. Either you can get the most amount of victory points or you can have the biggest army at the end or you can conquer the most land. Like these, the, 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 the sort of board games that would take hours and hours to get through. And a good piece of advice for those board games is always look at the rule book and rethink the victory conditions. Like really, like your strategy at the start of the board game might be, I need to maximize the number of sheep I have in my farm because then I can get more food and then I can get more gold and then I can win by having the biggest army because I've got sheep to feed my, feed my army. But then as the game progresses, 
you want to rethink, you want to like l- look at the victory conditions again. You want to re- reassess and think, is there another victory condition that I actually could be optimizing for instead? Do I really want to have the biggest army? Or instead, do I maybe want to go for the most victory points by having these culture generating monuments or whatever? And that kind of changes your strategy. And fine, maybe your strategy might not change. Maybe you're doing the right things, but you want to be reconsidering the victory conditions and thinking, what am I actually optimizing for here? Is there something based on the information I now have that I could change? And my worry for people, especially for medical students, is that it's so easy for us to go through medicine, to go through life, not really thinking about the victory conditions and just sort of getting stuck in this rat race of, you know, I need to get my points for FPAS, I need to get my points for ST3. And if we really think about it, we, we, we might realize that that's not what actually, what will bring us happiness and fulfillment. So that would be the final preachy note that I would, I would, I would want to end on. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If any of what Ali said resonated with you, here are three places I'd recommend following him. So number one, I'd search YouTube for Ali Abdel and subscribe. Number two, I'd listen to his and his brother's podcast called Not Overthinking It. And then finally, I'd go subscribe to his weekly newsletter by going to aliabdel.com. I'll include links to all of those in the description. You can find my socials and my newsletter by going to www.bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please leave a review on the Apple Store. It really helps out. Thank you.